Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. And we're live. So, Mike, why don't you uh, maybe take us away with the disclaimers before we get uh, going into the serious business or semi-serious business? Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, we've got a couple of great guests. We've got uh, Matthew Edwards and Rob first here. And I I think I'm going to let them introduce themselves a little bit as we get on. But as usual, we're going to have a wide ranging conversation. Today's uh, today's topic is the evolving uh, landscape of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and whatnot. Uh, I think almost a whole world of change has happened in only three or four months since we last had the uh, had a, a couple of gentlemen on to talk more about this. And I think these guys offer some pretty interesting and novel points of view. So as these novel points of views are, are shared, please go and get advice from a real financial professional, not like any of the people on this particular call today. <laughs> Make sure if you're doing anything in these crazy markets that you uh, that you consult a real professional. Today, we're going to have a conversation uh, about many things, and some of them will be potentially at the cutting edge of current beliefs, uh, current uh, uh, status quo and whatnot. So we'd like to have wide ranging conversations that have the freedom to do so. So make sure you get professional advice if you're going to act on anything. And well, then lastly, sorry. my drink today. Is, yeah, <laughs> my drink today is a nice uh, I'm having a nice cognac, um, keeping my uh, keto in place and uh, and cheers, gentlemen. And thank you for taking the time to join us. Cheers. Yeah. It's a cheers. hot Hot, unusually hot day here in Toronto, so going for a nice cold beer. As is Rob, oh, yeah. I believe. Yeah, that, that absolutely cold beer. I love it. I'm, what do you have, Matt? Yeah, I was going to say it's a cold day down here in South Lake, Texas. But I don't know if you guys are IPA guys, but this Sculpin IPA is my favorite. Nice little San Diego brewery. Looks very nice. Mm. I like that. I like that. So why don't we kick it off with a little bit about each of uh, yourselves, just to give some scope as to um, what your financial history is like, because you both have a pretty interesting financial sort of uh, um, uh, career history, how you came to know a little bit about, about this field. And I think you both come at this from very unique, but very insightful uh, positions as this, this um, sort of frontier asset class is developing. And so maybe, uh, Matt, we can start with you and you can just give us your um, sort of journey, if you will. Yeah, sure. So uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for that. Thanks for having me. Nice to nice to meet you guys. Um, so I I grew up in the traditional hedge fund world, uh, spent the formative part of my career uh, at a, a firm called Grosvenor Capital Management, which uh, which I suspect most people in the space have, have heard of Grosvenor is one of the oldest fund of funds in the world. In fact, I think it might be the second oldest, um, the oldest U.S.-based fund of funds, uh, started in 1971. So I, um, I joined the firm back in uh, 2001 and spent uh, about 13 or 14 years or so at the firm. The vast majority of my time spent there was on the manager due diligence side of the equation. Uh, so over the course of my, in my tenure at the firm, I, I helped lead due diligence on um, you know, several dozen hedge funds across the globe, uh, deployed several billion dollars on the back of that. Also helped manage 
a number of multi-manager, multi-strategy portfolios uh, uh, at the firm. Got to witness quite a bit of growth uh, in the traditional hedge fund space. You know, Grosvenor was really kind of at the tip of the spear as it relates to institutionalization of, of hedge fund investments. Uh, joined the firm again back in, in 2001. We were about two and a half billion in AUM. I left in 2014 when we were about 50 billion. So it was quite the ride. Um, the cool thing was, you know, I grew up, I'm here in South Lake, Texas. I grew up in Garland, Texas, which is relatively nearby. Um, but um, I was fortunate to be given responsibility for Asia at the firm. So I ended up becoming our Asia strategy head and got to move to Tokyo uh, back in 2006. And then I, I opened the Hong Kong office for the firm uh, back in January 2013. So that was a wonderful kind of training ground to learn about uh, alternative investing, particularly within the marketable security space. I got to meet some phenomenally talented investors all over the world, got to work with some great people at Grosvenor, and it was a wonderful training ground for me. Uh, and then I helped start a hedge fund in Hong Kong. You know, having been on the other side of the table, I was, of course, developed a natural curiosity about that side of the table. Uh, and so ended up helping to launch a global macro fund in Hong Kong, uh, started by the former co-head of Asia Macro Training at Goldman Sachs. Uh, which was uh, a really, really fun ride. I got to work with some, again, some wonderful people, got to see how the sausage was made, so to speak, uh, and got to sit on that other side of the table and interact with allocators globally. So, you know, over the course of the better part of 17, 18 years in traditional hedge funds, uh, I really got to see all sorts of different types of, of businesses and strategies and just meet some wonderful people. I left hedge funds, um, you know, having, which we'll probably talk about a little bit later on in the discussion, having grown a little bit disenchanted with the notion of sustainable alpha uh, in traditional liquid capital markets uh, and tried my hand at some consulting type work around leadership advisory and, and talent assessment, which was a curiosity of mine. And somewhere along the way, ended up going down the crypto rabbit hole um, at the behest of some friends of mine who are quite active in the space. I'm not a technologist by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, one thing that appealed to me uh, pretty immediately was um, you know, it, it sort of served as the antithesis of my old world and that it was a definition of inefficient. Uh, and so that really scratched the curiosity of mine. Uh, I immediately became interested in the space, started learning quite a bit more about it. Ended up briefly um, hooking up with a group in Hong Kong that actually just listed on NASDAQ via SPAC. It is SPAC season after all, uh, a group called Diginex, um, which is, uh, you know, they're, they're doing a number of different things, really trying to build sort of the infrastructure to facilitate the institutionalization of this asset class. I was initially helping them out with a number of different things at the Topco level. Uh, and then you know, saw that they were trying to build an asset management piece of the business at the center of which would sit a fund of funds. Uh, obviously, that was right up my alley. Started to kind of build that out for them, but then just got to the point where I thought to myself, why am I building a startup within a startup when I can go build that startup on my own? So here we are uh, today. Uh, we are in the process of uh, launching uh, Dalpha Capital Management, which is a uh, uh, will be a, a fund of funds uh, focused purely on digital asset trading strategies. Uh, we have a team of five people. Uh, we're really trying to do kind of similar to what Grosvenor did back in the mid-90s, which was provide that institutional on-ramp into a space that is a little bit scary for most. It can be opaque. There's a lot of cowboy behavior, risk management, and ap afterthought, operational deficiencies abound, but offer some pretty compelling risk return profiles. And so that's the same thing that we want to do uh, with Dalpha. And, uh, and we're pretty, pretty excited at the prospect. We see history rhyming uh, 
uh, quite a bit in terms of where we are in the maturation of the asset class and the practitioners looking to capitalize upon it and where we were back in the early days of traditional hedge funds. So that's that's us in a nutshell. Yeah, that's a very interesting question for us to pull on to, uh, I think, a little bit later on. How about you, Rob? Sure. Yeah. And thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, as, as Mike knows, I'm a co-founder of a Canadian brokerage uh, uh, called Echelon Wealth Partners. Uh, we're about 70 advisors managing around $6 billion in client assets. And we have a kind of mid-tier capital markets group of about 50 professionals. So that, uh, as I said, that started 10 years ago. It actually started out as something called Europac uh, Canada, which was an offshoot with Peter Schiff, of all people. And those who know crypto know that Peter is, uh, you know, very vocal uh, against Bitcoin, which is kind of ironic because, uh, you know, that partnership started as a really uh, kind of a play on hard assets. Uh, you know, Peter at that time was uh, he called the the housing crisis. And of course, he uh, was and still is a big advocate for hard assets, gold being, you know, the leading asset. And that made a lot of sense for us as Canadians. You know, we, we love hard assets and we thought that that kind of association would would do well to, uh, you know, to, to to have on our side as we were sort of two guys in a dream starting uh, starting a brokerage here in Canada. So uh, that's sort of the background of Echelon. Uh, how I got into the the securities business is a little bit circuitous itself. Uh, I took an English degree, which uh, is not the natural progression into finance, and uh, decided I didn't want to go the lawyer teacher route. Um, so I actually ended up becoming kind of a computer tech project manager in the late 90s, early 2000s, traded like a maniac through the dot-com uh, boom, as it were, even though in Canada it was only about a six-month kind of Mayflower or Mayfly kind of season. But uh, that really kind of was the jet fuel to trying to understand markets and what actually just happened here on the back of that, which led to an investigation on um, money and which led to gold, which led to starting to become an investor and I guess a speculator of sorts in uh, junior gold companies. Uh, and me, along with some of my friends who are, you know, uh, kind of all part of this together, uh, became, uh, I guess, kind of pulled into the capital markets. I had a friend who got uh, hired into a hedge fund right out of his basement. Uh, and uh, it was that time in the cycle in the early 2000s where it was just coming back into favor, kind of the, the gold theme, the hard asset theme. And so what we were doing kind of Digging around for those, uh, you know, those early stage companies was actually kind of a rare skill, believe it or not. Uh, and so started doing uh, basically non-broker private placements, kind of just early stage financings. Got pulled into a what we call an exempt market dealer here in Canada now. So sort of a, for accredited investors and doing doing deals for accredited uh, investors and institutions and and rode that wave right into 07, 08 until everything went kaboom, as we know. And then that was the impetus for uh, reforming. And uh, we circle right back to the uh, the cold call to Peter Schiff and, and the start of Echelon. So that's sort of the the roundabout uh, uh, cycle that's, that's brought me here today. I, I guess I'll mention the Bitcoin angle as well, which... Uh, for me, started in late 2016, and actually, like I think a lot of people, I feel like I was super late, given that I had the perfect sort of training for 
understanding and be open to to Bitcoin, be having kind of the computer background, understanding the tech side of being comfortable with that and the hard asset theme. Like those are the two real skill sets that uh, help with the understanding. Um, and uh, I just have to confess, even though I've been aware of it since uh, 2013 for sure, and even earlier then, because I know we looked at setting up some mining rigs and we had free power in 2013. I did not understand it until I read uh, an article that talked about the 21 million cap. And I was like, holy cow, like this could actually work. Uh, you know, the scarcity aspect of it just immediately leaped out at me. So that pulled me down the rabbit hole from that, literally that instant. Um, and uh, yeah, I've just been talking to anyone I can in the space here in Canada and elsewhere, um, just trying to make connections. I, you know, I feel like it's a new paradigm and uh, it's very difficult for, uh, you know, I think a lot of people to understand. But once you do understand it, I think you understand the power of it. So, you know, I feel like we have a maybe a special knowledge or like a superpower almost at this point. Uh, and maybe we're wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But uh, that's what makes it very exciting for me. So that's uh, that's my intro. And Rob, we're just just let's start jumping. It's called riffs, so we're going to riff from here. Mm-hmm. What? Where do you think that the you've got a, a, a significant client base, six billion in assets? Where do you think the retail advisor lands on that? And then from your institutional book, where where do you think the adoption rate is? Where are we in the Overton window of the acceptance of this kind of strange new, call it digital gold, if you will? Um, in the minds of sort of broad advisors. And I'll, I'll put that out to you, Matt, as well, on sort of second. Sure. Um, so we're very early still. Like, I think earlier than people even, people who are in the space or even in the financial space that are reading about it more than the average person. I don't think we truly appreciate probably how early we are. It's still very much the educational um, phase. And I can certainly say that for our advisors. I've uh, written a couple white papers. I've had conversations. We were uh, part of the uh, you know, the three IQ uh, product, the Prospectus Cleared Bitcoin Fund. Um, so we're having those conversations, but it just it takes time. Like the it takes time to accept sort of a new paradigm, a new asset class. And I would say that's you know in general still where we are. Um, there's a chart I saw on the internet uh, yesterday, uh, I think it was by Willie Wu, sort of a well-known Twitter quantitative guy, tracks some some of the good crypto metrics. Um, and uh, he was kind of making the argument that we were still in the innovator phase and maybe just passing over into the early adopter phase. So kind of like 2.4% uh, adoption. And you know, I sometimes feel like maybe we're farther along, but you know, truthfully, that's probably pretty accurate. We're, we're just we're just scratching the surface of, yeah, of understanding and adoption. So um, maybe I'll get uh, Matt's thoughts as well here. Uh, so I don't monopolize it. Yeah, <clears throat> I uh, fully agree with that assessment. I mean, it's, it's quite clear to me that we are certainly early dates. Um, our, our focus uh, as a firm tends to be more on the institutional side of the equation, uh, which is, um, you know, in my estimation, at least, that's basically all white space uh, at the moment. Um, you know, there have been obviously some announcements, relatively high profile here recently, uh, with some some of the publicly listed companies allocating some portion of their balance sheet to, to Bitcoin. Um, and you know, we've seen 
a couple of the endowments. Uh, there was a piece over the weekend in Forbes, it was Forbes or Fortune, about Paradigm, uh, which is a very successful VC group yeah. uh, that uh, was able to raise a fairly significant amount of capital uh, from the Harvards and the Stanfords uh, uh, and Yales of the world. So we have seen uh, a few more kind of institutional type investors uh, like the endowments and foundations kind of dip their toe in the space. Uh, from what we've been able to surmise thus far, the vast majority of that has been more on the, on the kind of less liquid side uh, of the spectrum. And I think maybe to, to Rob's point around sort of this whole notion of, of discovery and education, what have you, uh, I think it's probably easier for these professional investors to kind of think about this as an innovative new technology, right? And so where do they, where do they have a budget for that in the context of the broader asset allocation? It's in the VC bucket, right? So it's kind of easier for them to perform that calculus in their own minds and, and carve off you know, a couple of percent of the portfolio just to kind of see how this goes. Um, we operate on the, the complete opposite side of the spectrum, uh, which um, uh, we think there's still plenty of opportunity there as well uh, to kind of complement that less liquid approach. But, uh, but on that side of the spectrum, there just really hasn't been much activity yet. So it's all, in our minds, it's, it's all white space. It's, uh, it's interesting um, that the, the institutions have to kind of allocate it into a, a VC bucket or something that already exists. I mean, um, I think it was really noteworthy with the micro strategy. Uh, I, I'm sure you guys saw the Michael Saylor micro strategy um, transaction where, uh, and for those who don't know it, micro strategy is a publicly traded NASDAQ company, a couple billion market cap and had 500 million in cash. And the CEO of that company, uh, a guy named Michael Saylor, publicly came out over the last uh, couple of weeks and said, we've allocated almost all of it, 425 million to, to Bitcoin. Uh, so we bought 38,000 odd Bitcoin. Um, that I think is uh, the leading edge of what we're likely to see more of. And it makes more sense uh, to me than um, trying to you know, shoehorn it into a VC bucket, notwithstanding, you know, we, we know how that kind of process works. People have their buckets, they have their processes, and uh, they may not have room for an asset class that they're still trying to figure out if, if it exists or not. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's, there's a lot of legacy frameworks of how to allocate capital that uh, can embrace gold because it has this 5,000-year history, but uh, the new entrant in the, the, the field, the so-called digital gold, will take some time for the acceptance. What do you think uh, uh, the, uh, the news of guys like Paul Tudor Jones coming out publicly and embracing the asset class as a huge opportunity and, and uh, Novogratz, some of these guys that have made and earned their, their, their wings in the macro, uh, global macro hedge fund space. What does that do for the space? I'm happy to jump on this, Matt, if you... Uh, sure, sure. I think it's huge. I think it's the leading edge of what we're going to just see kind of a wave behind that. Um, yeah, I mean, guys like Paul Tudor Jones are very respected, successful macro guys. And when they come out, you know, even though he did it through futures and maybe not the purest way that, uh, you know, a Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoiners might want, uh, recognizing the value of uh, a Bitcoin in a portfolio and the asymmetric returns, uh, that's a big endorsement. And I think that gives social proof to other uh, participants, especially other institutional managers. So, I mean, there's a lot of 
chatter uh, about Ray Dalio because he's basically says makes a complete argument for Bitcoin, uh, except that he doesn't advocate for Bitcoin, right? And you know, people will talk about Elon Musk. We'll talk about the, the you know the treasury of Apple, and and a lot of this stuff is early, but uh, it paves the way. This stuff paves the way. Um, similarly with the PayPal announcement, right? Like now you just got a major institution endorsing um, it as a business. And that brings legitimacy um, apart from just, you know, the, the infrastructure that it brings and potentially the wave of buying and the price signal that that quite possibly will, you know, will, will, will issue. Um, yeah. So, and we're seeing these kind of things happen faster and faster, right? You've got a, one week, last week, you've got Mike Saylor and MicroStrategy. This, you know, on the week before it was Paul Tudor Jones. Now it's PayPal. Now PayPal is talking about buying BitGo. Coinbase is going to IPO, right? So there's a stack of news and there's a whole, I mean, we could go on and on about kind of all the things that are happening around it, cracking, be getting a bank license. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that are really tying it to uh, paradigms that people understand. And that is very helpful. Yeah, um, if I just add a couple of thoughts there, I, I think um, you know it's been interesting. Some of the some of the earlier movers in terms of professional money managers have obviously come from the macro side of the spectrum, right? Um, Paul Turdy Jones, obviously being probably the most high profile um, and and most recent in terms of the big splash in the space. But guys like Novo, uh, guys like Dan Moorhead at Pantera. Uh, Dan Tapiero, um, uh, as well, who's been active in the space. It's sort of, to me, it, it makes sense that macro practitioners would gravitate towards this space. You know, there's obviously the macro economic component of it in terms of, you know, we have this emergent store of value, um, that is literally just kind of taking shape by the day and the potential inflationary protection elements associated with this finite resource. And I think that's what Paul Trudeau Jones has focused on uh, in his letters and so forth. So, uh, but there's also this notion of asymmetry, right? Um, and there has been a number of pieces. I think Fidelity was the most recent one to publish an analysis around just take your typical 60-40 portfolio and you carve off some percentage to Bitcoin and notwithstanding the fact that Bitcoin in absolute return terms, is a highly volatile asset, right? And is therefore quite risky in traditional metrics. Um, via diversification effects, it actually helps to improve the risk-adjusted returns of a portfolio, right? Uh, and I think they came up with the ideal, the optimal amount was somewhere like 3 or 4% carved off to Bitcoin. So that's that's yeah. all well and good. And that, that case has been made a number of times. Uh, Fidelity was just the most recent one to publish something along those lines. But but you haven't, up to this point at least, it's been mostly an academic exercise, right? Um, institutions haven't really kind of followed suit and said, okay, well, that makes great sense. I'm therefore going to allocate 2 to 3% of my book to Bitcoin. And the reason for that, in my, in my mind at least, is thinking as an allocator and thinking about how allocators make decisions, you know, the, the idea of this asymmetric risk return profile where you can make 10 times your money or you could lose probably not 100%. I'm, I'm not convinced Bitcoin could ever go to zero. I think there's too many believers out there in the world. Um, there'll always be a bid. But you could lose, as we saw in 2018, you could lose 70, 75%, right? 
So if you if you think about it in the context of a of a of an allocator, that's that's a big ask, right? To be able to even if the theoretical upside is ten times, you still need to entertain the notion that you could be down seventy five percent mark to market. <laughs> that's, career risk. That's really hard. There's massive career risk and there's massive blame aversion, and I understand all of it as as Zeckhauser refers to it as, you know, I, I get it. And but for the macro guys, you know. Asymmetry is what they do, right? <laughs> they lick their chops at the notion of this stuff. So it makes total sense to me that the macro guys are getting involved in, in allocating to the space. And frankly, in, in my mind, Paul Tudor Jones was by far the most bullish development from a just from a pure asset allocation perspective. I actually have a contrarian view on micro strategy where I think it was not a bullish development at all. Um, but we can we can talk about that uh, if you'd like. But I think Paul Tudor Jones for sure. You know, not just allocating to the space, but just his walking through his thought process, right? And and helping people understand this is how we view this asset as a potential hedge against what he called the great monetary inflation. But my my own my own caveat to all of this is this is all well and good, but I think the other thing that's potentially holding us back somewhat is this all still remains purely theoretical in nature, right? Because Bitcoin's been around really since, you know, two thousand. So it's been been around the better part of ten years now, right? And we haven't really seen it tested in a period of of inflation, right, or hyperinflation. So we don't really know how it would perform in that scenario. There's plenty of reasons to believe that it would perform well for all the the obvious reasons that that folks have spoken and written about. But we don't know. So it's contemplating theoretical future states of the world. First of all, that inflation is going to come back <laughs> in any form, which I think plenty of people will debate. But also, in the event inflation does return, Bitcoin will actually serve as a hedge, which, again, I appreciate the, the sort of academic approach to it and why people would believe that. But we don't really know yet, which is, uh, I think, something else is probably holding some people back. I kind of want to pull on a couple of threads that you dropped uh, as you were explaining your thought process there. You mentioned resource in describing Bitcoin, and you also described it uh, early as a store of value. And obviously, I don't have to tell you guys that there's a lot of people that would like to take the opposite side of that argument and say that Bitcoin is neither of the two. So I was wondering if you guys might uh, might take a stab at uh, making that argument. Why why would uh, investors see it both as a store of value and perhaps as a resource as well? Well, the store of value, I think, is relatively simple. Like we've never had an asset that's got defined scarcity, right? Even gold, you can go mine more of it. It's whatever it is, two percent a year comes out. You could get more if the you know if the price signals to the market. You should get more. So I think that I don't think we have to overcomplicate that side of it. Um, there's lots of question marks. There's a, so many uh, so-called Bitcoin myths about why you might not be confident in, you know, the 21 million or the Bitcoin network, which we could spend a good you know day and a half debunking uh, all of them. And, and, and I guess we're in the process of the market working through them, quite frankly. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think if you can get yourself through uh, the, the Bitcoin miss and get over the hurdles, right? Is uh, yeah, you know, it's it's not backed by anything, right? I mean, well, what is money? Is money as an you know as an informational technology? Where does it say you have to have intrinsic value? 
nowhere, right? Scarcity is 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 that quality. Uh, I think people confuse, uh, you know, intrinsic for scarcity. Um, and then there's all the other qualities, which, you know, we don't, we don't need to get into that uh, unless we want to. But, uh, yeah, so I think it's, it's a, there's a discovery process obviously going on. But it is, I, I fail to see uh, none of the Bitcoin myths. Uh, they're all exploded for me. Obviously, spent, you know, I've got my own comfort on that. Um, obviously, and, there, and then there's the... Uh, and by the way, thank you for the Zeckhauser. I uh, actually ended up reading that paper because of you, Matt, uh, which was great. Uh, I hadn't seen any okay. work kind of on in that type of framework, which just makes so much more sense for, um, I don't know, for how I think of the world. And, and, and so it was very helpful. But I mean, there, yeah, there's so much unknowables uh, and unknowns around Bitcoin. Um, but I just can't. So I can't. But I can't conceive, I guess, by definition, there, you know. Um, they're unknowable, but but beyond that, I can't conceive of how it fails. If money converges, uh, or if economic systems converge to one um, form of money, and this is the best form of money, which was sort of the original thesis and the eureka moment for me, then you know that's the thesis right there. That's the store of value, and it just seems like the world is waking up to that. There's been nothing I've seen. Um, that's contraindicated, any of that. Um, and so I'm interested, Matt, in uh, why you think it's uh, bearish uh, on the Michael, Michael Saylor. I think that's an interesting uh, uh, place to, to go. Well, I, I, maybe I misspoke. I don't, I don't necessarily view it as bearish per se. Um, uh, in fact, it's probably quite bullish. But I, I just, um, I suppose our take is a little bit contrarian. Um, and, you know, as uh, sounds like you've you've probably gone down the, the crypto Twitter rabbit hole and um, probably too know, far, <laughs> probably too far. I, I, uh, I, I certainly don't recommend it for anyone um, or everyone, rather, certainly not those that are more faint of heart. But it's yeah, there, there is a. Um, you know, I think there's an insecurity that that kind of underpins the space uh, and it's understandable because. This is a space that, you know, particularly in its early years, you know, was was, you know, it was really kind of the cyberpunks and then you know the 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 misfits and what have you that are a little bit, you know, lying outside the system, right, and on the periphery. Yep. Yep. And so, but that also means that there's a very strong sense of solidarity, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, but within that solidarity, there's a massive echo chamber. And so anything that could be viewed as potentially bullish or supportive of Bitcoin, therefore, must be good, right? No matter what. Um, and, and, I, and I look at the case of, of MicroStrategy without going into too much detail, but I just kind of wonder, okay, so they basically just allocated, first of all, what's the purpose of a treasury function? Uh, and the, the, the second question would be, they, they just allocated 98% of their net cash to a single asset. Right, which happens to be one of the most volatile assets in the world, right? And so that in and of itself, I think, is you should certainly raise some questions as to the responsibility of an action like that, right? If my if my friend were super bullish on Apple and told me that one hundred percent of his ninety eight percent of his liquid net worth was invested in Apple, I'd be like, ah, maybe yeah, might want to diversify a little bit, <laughs> you know, not uh, so. So that that's one element, and and two, it's you know, I just find it interesting. MicroStrategy came out of the blue, 
They had nothing to do with crypto as a business. Michael Saylor had nothing to say about crypto. And then all of a sudden, you know, you know, he's now kind of the hero yep. of the Bitcoin universe tweeting every day about Bitcoin. You know, he's tweeted more in the past two months than he has in the past three years. And so I just think it's kind of interesting. And if you look at their share price up until the point that they purchased Bitcoin versus what the share price has done post that acquisition, I just think it's kind of an interesting chart to look at. Right. Um, now, that's not to say it's not a brilliant strategy. I think it, it is commercially, you know, um, and it could turn out to be a phenomenally successful strategy and one that's quite profitable for everyone involved. But I just kind of look at it. And I'm like, well, it seems that's just sort of an interesting thing that happened. <laughs> but the, uh, the Bitcoin space loves it because it's, it's bullish and it well, sort it of fits into the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think those are, uh, the echo chamber, I think, is a great point um i'll make a couple counterpoints uh to that um so the treasury um for micro strategy i guess the at least uh as per kind of michael saylor's version he didn't feel like they are getting value in the public stock for the treasury and i guess they don't need that cash right it's just kind of accumulating they don't need it for working capital they don't need it to run their business so i think it's fundamentally a little different for them to allocate 100 percent of that Versus, you know, your theoretical buddy who is allocating his, you know, maybe his net worth, right? Where there's true kind of uh, risk if things go go pear shaped, um, and uh, and but you're absolutely correct. I think in the other respects, like he has become sort of this emblem uh, for for Bitcoin Twitter, or whatever whatever you want to call it. Um, so the echo chamber is is big and it's loud, but. The thought process that Michael went through, right, and he's been on every podcast, I think, that exists out there in the last yeah. couple of months, is exactly the thought process that I believed any intelligent capital allocator would go through. And he makes a, he's very articulate in going through, okay, well, if it's not cash because it's, you know, it's a melting ice cube, you know, is it gold? You know, is it stocks? And he goes through all the reasons why it isn't. And then you get into the, you know, well, why Bitcoin versus any other altcoin? And he actually brings, I think, some interesting kind of new uh, ways of looking at it in terms of saying, look, this is a hundred billion plus market cap. And that's very similar to other, you know, dematerialized networks and citing Apple and Google. Um, that that's a threshold sort of size and, and, and Bitcoin is dematerializing money in the same way that we dematerialize these other networks and massive value was unleashed. And who knows, right? But I think yeah. that is new into the dialogue. Um, and this isn't, you know, he's got um, credibility and a history in this space. Um, and, and he's got a history of being very vocal about things and not right about everything. But I think those are very interesting. Um, the fact that he shared his thought process, I feel like other people um, will go through that that journey as well. So for me, yeah. that's that was important. Look, I, I think he's done a, a great job of shaping a narrative. I think he's done a great job of talking his book, uh, as we say. Um, yep. And I'll just leave you with one one sort of point of comparison, which I think is is important to consider. So a few days after that acquisition, you know, Square came out and announced their own. Uh, their allocation to the space was fifty million. They, they right. purchased fifty yeah. million worth of Bitcoin. On you know, I think their cash on hands two and a half billion. It was they've got 
yeah. I think two billion of debt. So it's ten percent of their net cash, right? So ten percent versus ninety-eight percent is a meaningful delta, particularly when you contemplate the fact that Square is a business that derives a meaningful percentage of its revenue from Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Square, as you know, is also CEO of Twitter, yeah. and he has one thing on his Twitter profile, which is Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Yeah. So <laughs> that I think is interesting to contemplate. Um, I think that's a study in personality contrast, <laughs> and it probably speaks to the ego and uh, let's just call it focus to be diplomatic of Michael Saylor. <laughs> I just think it's you know, but I don't think I he's think wrong I, either. I don't. Yeah, I, look, he's he'll probably end up being yeah. proven totally correct, and this will be a brilliant strategy. But you know, outcome bias cuts both ways, right? You know, just well, because the, the outcome is a positive one. You know, it doesn't mean the decision making was. Cash, then what's the downside? It goes to zero, and you know, you generated another couple hundred million, presumably, from your business in the meantime. So maybe, you know, so maybe it's uh, maybe it is a brilliant strategy. Well, yeah. time will tell. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting, right? The the idea of the this is narrative economics, so. I like to talk about the Rolling Stones and probably the band of our era, the one that represents the music that we most listen to, but they're no Mozart. They haven't been around 500 years. Gold's been around 5,000 years. It has a proven track record to hedge inflation, to um, give us that inflationary hedge when we get into sort of MMT type scenarios, which we're in now. So if we think about the global macro scenario, I wonder to what extent, um, you know, money being a store of value, a unit of account, uh, or a medium of exchange. I mean, those are the three things that create money. And I think the, you know, the unit of account's probably pretty good. We can all agree. I mean, 10 minutes might be a longer time than you might you want to, you know, with the technology is going to improve. Um, the medium of exchange and the store of value are the two things now that they, they, they're sort of interwoven as compromising one another. If your volatility is too high, um, that compromises the ability to have a medium of exchange. If I, if you owe me X dollars on an invoice or X bitcoins on an invoice, and that's going to vary by twenty or thirty percent between my billing and my receiving, that's that's a bit of a challenge, both for the unit of account and the store of value. So, um, but again, it's early stages, you know. Um, but what do you guys think of of that side of it? The, the, like, if we're going to argue that Bitcoin is digital gold, I suppose, you know, gold's not worth anything either. It just, you know, I can get a brick of it and I can hold my door open on a windy day, but there's no economic use to it. And it's just the perceived notion of that value of the common of the commons, if you will. And I guess, I guess we're crossing that labyrinth for Bitcoin. Is that, is that what we're supposed to believe? I'm taking a bit of a skeptic's point of view here, only just for a moment, just for fun. But what do you guys say to that type of question or discussion? I've got a lot to say, but Matt, you should take the first crack at this one. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so look, look, I, I think um, in, in my mind, the way I think about it is, is the current use case and the future use case. Um, and we're speaking about Bitcoin in particular at the moment. And obviously, there's plenty of other digital assets uh, out there. But so in the case of Bitcoin, in, in my mind, the primary use case at the moment is purely speculation. Right. Um, and I think entertaining okay. the possibility that folks will use this for transactions. I know I know some of the hardcore believers do. Um 
And in fact, I've, I've done it myself. But the reality is for an asset that's so volatile, as you know, it's hard to use it as a medium of exchange, right? Now that may change in the future. Uh, I myself am skeptical that governments will allow that to happen. Um, I think, you know, the render under Caesar, you know, I think it's going to be hard to expect that the U.S. government or China or whomever will be willing to sort of give up control uh, and allow for this currency to facilitate transactions. Not because, you know, it's it's super the reality is Bitcoin isn't super private. I mean, you can you can actually audit the um, the the, uh, the 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 trail, the transaction trail pretty, pretty easily. Um it's more because they just need to control their monetary supply, right? And they need to know what that looks like. And um, and I think giving up that sort of control is going to be hard. Now, it's totally possible. I mean, people peg their currencies to the U.S. dollar, right? Countries do that. And they give up complete control of their monetary policy on the back of it. So there is every possibility that the Venezuelas of the world and so forth could do the same, right? And that'll create a pretty interesting situation, but I view, you know, that as sort of down the road. Um, I think if Bitcoin achieves some sort of critical level and volatility gets stripped away a little bit, and people will be less likely to um, to be incentivized to use it as a medium of exchange, then that could certainly happen. But for but for now, it's purely speculation, right? People are owning Bitcoin because they think it's going to go up in value. I think in the future, the only use case, in my estimation, is store value, right? Um, this notion of digital gold. This digital scarcity, which Rob referred to, I mean, this is this is what's attracting the Paul Tudor Jones of the world and so forth, is the possibility that this thing could serve as an inflation hedge, which means you know something that could actually retain its value over time uh, in the midst of all the other madness you know going on in the world. But that that in my mind is again contemplating a theoretical future state because we just haven't seen it yet. But it's certainly that's really kind of the primary impulse. Um, and that, that, that in my mind is what's going to attract, you know, the smart money, the Paul Tudor Jones, you know, the big institutions that come to this space. Michael Saylor obviously has done it in a pretty big way. I think more and more people are going to latch on to the store value notion. And that'll be what drives real adoption over time, uh, in, in my mind. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So, go ahead. And so. I think Rob's going well, to just, we've got a question too. Like how, how does the value of the asset? I think we're getting a little bit, I'm of getting a, a bit of a slow connection. So I'm going to yeah, you go right. ahead. I'll, I'll respond and uh, to your original question, Mike, and then we'll see if you're uh, kind of back on, on stream. But uh, yeah, I mean, I would largely agree with Matt. This is definitely a speculative uh, store value at this point, by and large, there definitely are use cases as uh uh, for a medium of exchange, forget unit of account, the volatility is off the charts. So it just makes no sense to really price anything for any length of time in it. Um, that's probably a long way off. Um, so, yeah, it's it's speculating that this will continue to be used as a store of value. Uh, speaking to the kind of the, the government side of things, which is, you know, one of the big um, fears uh, I think absolutely you're going to see continuing bans. I mean, China's banned, they've unbanned, they've banned, and then they've rebanned again. Um, like expect that soap opera to continue. Uh, and we'll see that, um, you know, we, and I don't even think we've seen the beginning of the real battle with governments because this is a, ultimately, if you believe in it as a store of value and it starts to actually, you know, increasing in value, then 
um, you're going to run head on with the central banks of the world. And I think we all understand that they are in no way, shape or form willing to give up the ability to print money, which is the seat of their power more than anything. Um, so that battle is coming. And this is why it's very important to be a decentralized network. Um, and this is why the altcoins that don't have this decentralization where they have figureheads, actual people that can be, you know, subpoenaed, jailed, whatever, um, you need to be truly decentralized. And Bitcoin is the only network that comes close to a true level of decentralization at the mining level and the node level. And for that matter, the developer level, although that might be kind of the most uh, easy uh, vector of attack is actually attacking the developers and the GitHub repository and things like that. But if you, um, you don't have that, then you're more vulnerable to it what I expect to see is jurisdictional arbitrage where, and we've already kind of seen that uh, kind of in a light version, or as I said, you know, we've seen China, we've seen India ban it, we've seen lots of countries ban it, and then they flip flop. Um, you're not going to see every country ban it at the same time. And if they do, if one country bans it, they're banning it because it's working, um, not because it's not working. So that is an endorsement. So, okay, if you want to, you know, if you want to ban it in the U.S., go ahead. We're going, we're going to Malta. We're going to Argentina. We're going, maybe not Argentina. They'll yep. probably fight it pretty hard, but, uh, but they'll go somewhere. Back, Rob, on that a little bit, because I, I, I think from a sort of reflexive uh, argument there, the very fact that it's super decentralized and, and kind of outside of the purview of the monetary system might be the, the, major hurdle for it to grow into the institutional space because of what you got what you're describing so right now bitcoin is what a 200 uh 20 billion market cap give or take no, like 240 billion Two, roughly 240 billion okay so i i got it wrong for by an order of magnitude but it's still it's still super small, small though by any measure yeah, yeah, yeah and the 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 diehards, the the cypherpunks, they're going to huddle their satoshis, and they're they're probably not going to want to to use it as a medium of exchange. And uh, Matt was describing people in Venezuela; they're probably going to want to actually use it as a way to escape hyperinflationary uh, scenarios like that. But once it becomes once once it's no longer flying under the radar, and it does become a a real threat to central banks' abilities to keep the party going in the manner that we're seeing. And now MMT within the Overton window, probably coming into policy sooner or later. Isn't that going to probably scare away some of the bigger institutions that might bring this asset class into the, the, the uh, next stage of its evolution, as you guys are describing it? Well, it's already scared them away. They're just coming around one by one. So... Yeah, yeah. It's a completely novel asset. There's no precedent, right? Currency is issued by central banks and countries. That's what we've known for the last 200 years. And so now you've got to get your head around the fact that it's a bunch of cypherpunks that have, you know, an open source development and people running nodes somewhere, some way and Chinese miners in whatever you think it is. You've got to get your head around it. But uh, if you don't, then you've got to look at kind of what the reality is that you're left with. And the reality is crazy MMT and buying ever escalating overvalued assets or becoming more and more of a speculator. I mean, this is what is driving 
people and thereby and ultimately institutions to it, we're all forced to be speculators, crazy speculators, because the money printing is distorting the price signals so much. So how do you, you know, you at a certain point, you know, the pot gets so hot that it's you start thinking outside of your your normal, you know, paradigm. You're like, well, how can I avoid you know, and we've seen that in countries where things are more advanced. We've seen it in Argentina. We've seen it in Venezuela. We've seen it in 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 some of the African countries, right? Where there and there's big premiums in some of those countries to Bitcoin because it's needed now. So, so you're right. Like, yeah, they're not. This is not something that uh, you know the masters of the universe who run these hedge funds. They don't really probably want to contemplate it. Um, but if they don't, at some point, the world's going to flip potentially into pricing everything in Bitcoin and then your returns aren't going to look so good. Matt, you want to take a crack at the, yeah. Or, or are you fully in agreement? And <laughs> Rob's, uh... yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I appreciate Rob's enthusiasm and I think it would be, uh, it'd be amazing for, for all of us if, if assets were one day priced in Bitcoin uh, <laughs> as opposed to us dollars. But you know, I, I um, look. I, I think the best, the most realistic, long-term kind of strategy for Bitcoin is just to go away from the medium exchange um, side of the equation and just just focus on the store value and be happy with that. And I think, you know, thinking about the U.S. government and other governmental authorities who want to retain control, you know, it's sort of the the, the boiling frog, you know, in the water. Uh, just allow it to sort of slowly chip away at the periphery. You know, what is gold? An eight or nine trillion dollar market cap today. Bitcoin is 250 billion. There's a lot of real estate between there and here. Um, And just let it kind of slowly do its thing and let it earn its stripes. And that's a value add, right? And this moment in time in particular, given all the money printing going on that we've discussed, that store value thesis makes sense. And just let, let that play out, right? And if it just does that, um, and more and more institutions want exposure because of that thesis, and just could do away with, you know, we want to be able to go to the grocery store and purchase things in Bitcoin, you know, let's just forget about that for now and just appreciate for it for what it is, which is an emerging store of value. And that'll give you a much longer runway where, you know, the authorities of the world, I would imagine, are less concerned about people deciding, hey, I'm going to own some gold, I'm going to own some art and some wine, and I'll own some Bitcoin, you know? And uh, just let it let it happen sort of naturally that way. And maybe outside of the uh, VC bucket and but rather sort of maybe substituting part of the gold, precious metals, that part of the alternative bucket in general. Do, do, do you see that as, as, as something that might be the reality for Bitcoin institutional holders in the coming years? Uh, so. I, I do. Um, obviously, I'm talking my own book here a little bit, <laughs> but uh, plug away. Look, you know, I, I uh, as referenced earlier, in my estimation, the primary use case right now is speculation. And you know, even when people put statistics up there around, you know, there's been a trillion dollars or what have you in terms of transaction activity, right? Um, the reality is, all that activity is, for the most part, people just trading on exchange, <laughs> um, and and so I, and I view it purely as an asset class to trade, right? And uh, of course, I am longer term bullish in terms of the space broadly defined, not just Bitcoin. I think mean, there's so many interesting 
ways that this space can innovate. I think there's all sorts of crossover potential around tokenization and so forth. I'm definitely bullish, but I also try to be a little bit pragmatic about the here and now. And in my mind, the here and now is, you know, first of all, how often are you introduced to an entirely new asset class, right? Like, when does that happen? <laughs> Not often, right? And we're witnessing it and we can trade it now in the here and now. So Bitcoin trades as much as spiders do daily, right? Uh, so you can, it's tradable and it happens to be incredibly inefficient by virtue of the fact that, of course, it is a nascent asset class. You have, uh, you know, sort of developing yet fragmented and very immature infrastructure, you know, with all this, you know, different trading venues across the world, different regulatory regimes, different instruments that can be traded, emerging instruments around derivatives and options, what have you. So there's so much opportunity for, call it arbitrage per se, right? And unlike, you know, the liquid capital markets that we're all accustomed to, that are 90% dominated by institutions, this is a space that's dominated by retail flow, right? And so if you're coming and facing off as a professional investor, whether you're a former FX trader or quant or what have you, you come into this space and it's just, it's just ripe with opportunity, right? So I view it as purely an asset class to trade at the moment. And to the extent we think about, you know, where, what does that mean for us and our business? You know, you've got an incredibly interesting risk return profile available on the back of the fact that this is such an inefficient asset class, right? And there's so much alpha on offer. And, and that, you know, when we think about what's going on with absolute return portfolios for most investors and their broader asset allocation, you know, there was a point in time when hedge funds could deliver on the original promise, which was to maximize absolute and risk-adjusted returns in uncorrelated fashion, right? But today, as you all know, hedge funds are LIBOR plus, right? Um, no volatility to speak of. Hopefully that sharp gets close to one and hopefully they're somewhat uncorrelated, you know? That's just inter less interesting because a lot of the opportunities have been arbed away and markets become much more efficient. Whereas you come here and it's the early days of hedge funds, right? back in the days when all the ex-Bob Rubin risk arb guys were crushing it because their spreads were so fat. And then those spreads got arbed away and they became something else. It's the same thing now, like early innings now for folks that are willing to go out there and, and set up vehicles to capitalize in a liquid form on an incredibly inefficient asset class. And, and one more thought on that. Yeah, we, we think about it in terms of binary versus continuous thinking, right? So most of the arguments in favor of Bitcoin, for example, are around, you know, this asymmetry, right? Which means, you know, Bitcoin goes up or it goes down, you know? Um, and then with VC allocations, which we love, by the way, because they're helping to fund the infrastructure build out that's required in the space. But VC is sort of binary squared, right? It's betting on the future of blockchain, blockchain technology, you know, happening or not. You know, crypto sort of going up as an asset class or going down, you know, entrepreneurs executing or not, right? Whereas, so that's very binary in its thinking, whereas we think about things more continuous, you know, so along the spectrum between the denialists and the maximalists lies a whole host of opportunity in between that, you know, they're there purely to trade the chop. Volatility is a good thing and can make money theoretically in up and down markets. And so if I were an institution thinking about attacking this space, you know, I would contemplate that sort of barbell approach, you know, having a a less liquid approach that's geared more towards, you know, the, the future seven to 10 years on the road and a more liquid approach where you can kind of solve for both outcomes. 
yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I think Mike continues to have a little bit of a technical difficulty there, but I think he was going to pull on the thread of uh, Jason Mackey's question, which is how do you value an asset that is completely replicable? And why should any one digital asset crash created out of thin air be worth more than any other? Right. And, and I think that dovetails into what we might be uh, uh, moving into, I think, for this conversation, which is we focus a lot on Bitcoin. But I think there's, you know, these other crypto assets, Matt, you're actually focused on the space as a whole. So I think it's, it, it might be interesting to maybe tackle uh, uh, this question, both of you. But I think maybe discuss a little bit more of some of the other assets and why perhaps Bitcoin. Is it just because it was the first one has the longest blockchain and perhaps it is the one that everybody benchmarks themselves to? But why don't you uh, take over? Well, we have our first Bitcoin myth, so the ball's <laughs> rolling now. Uh, yeah, look, uh, the code of Bitcoin can be copied. It's out there. It's on GitHub. It's you know, it's designed to be fork, fork away. But what you, and so you can get the code. You can get the UTXO set, right? Which is basically a fancy way of saying the bitcoins, right? The same database. And that's happened. We saw that the, the fork wars of 2017, we had Bitcoin Cash, we had Bitcoin SV, and everyone who owned Bitcoin at that time, now we're owners of Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV and Bitcoin Gold, and, and there's some worse ones than that. But what they can't replicate, you cannot replicate the miners, you can't replicate the devs, you can't replicate the network effects. That's where the value comes from, not from the code, which anyone could see at any time, not from the UTX OSET, which is out there in public blockchain. So, and this has been the flaw in Peter Schiff's thinking all along, right? That it has no intrinsic value and I can copy it. Well, yeah, you can create Peter Coin tomorrow. You could create the same exact rules. So why don't you, right? Why doesn't anyone? Because they don't have the other factors. And it's, that's just what it is. It's actually that simple. Matt, anything to add there? And uh, I guess sort of getting into some of the other coins, maybe talk a little bit about Ethereum and, and Litecoin and some of the other uh, majors, let's call them, and uh, why Bitcoin as the standard bearer of the yeah. space. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, I guess, you know, maybe playing a little bit on, on Rob's previous point, um, you know, sort of the, the protected nature of Bitcoin in the context of digital assets more broadly, um, and this speaks a little bit to some of the some of the thinking around Michael Saylor and what he's talked about on the on the topic. You know, sort of Andreessen back in the day, software eating the world. You know, within the context of digital assets, it's clear that Bitcoin's kind of eating the world. <laughs> um, it is it is the winner, in in the sense that one of the beautiful things about this space it is it is kind of cutthroat capitalist, so to speak, um, in that people vote with their feet. And it's very democratized in that in that respect. And so to Rob's point around, there's already been forks. People vote with their feet, right? And you've got uh, 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 Bitcoin Cash and uh, uh, Satoshi's vision. Um, and obviously, the market sort of looked at those and, and puked them out and, and went back to Bitcoin. Uh, and Bitcoin continued its steady march, right? So... Um, you know, it's certainly possible, though, in my mind, that there could be another innovation somewhere along the way that the market decides is more interesting, right? I think replicating, to Rob's point, this notion of decentralization, you know, it's sort of interesting. Satoshi Nakamoto comes out of nowhere, um, writes this white paper, 
And the next thing you know, 10 years later, it's a $350 billion market cap, right? <laughs> it's a, a pretty remarkable situation. Um, and the uh, sort of the Nakamoto consensus algorithm and what have you is, is sort of beautiful in, in its simplicity. And again, I'm not a technologist, but the notion of being able to solve for a group agreement and or disagreement um, in purely algorithmic fashion is kind of interesting, right? Uh, and the fact that it is decentralized that no one can sort of push the buttons, uh, I think speaks to sort of the strength and the ethos that underpins Bitcoin as a as really sort of a belief system, right? Um, and so it's hard to imagine, it's gonna be really hard, I think, for someone to come and chip away at that. However, you know, ETH has a lot of, I think, you know, utility, right? This whole notion around smart contracts and so forth, I think is is super interesting, super helpful, um, can do a great job of eliminating middlemen in the form of lawyers, for example, <laughs> much much more cheaply. Um, and and there's all sorts of other coins out there that have, you know, potentially some degree of, of value and utility to them. I'm open to that. I'm here for it. I, I hope that happens because I think it'll be an interesting evolution in this space. I think if it's only Bitcoin, then that'll be a disappointment in my mind uh, to see, again, the emergence of an asset class not really happen, right? And it end up just being one. I think there's other types of use cases out there, carve out the store value use case for Bitcoin and then move along to other ones potentially with other coins. I would, I frankly would love to love to see that because that just creates more opportunity for us, of course, in our business. So I've got a, I've got a couple of points um, to, to add on there. So, you know, I said there was no, it was that simple in my last comments, but uh, Matt, what you said there in terms of people, you know, didn't want to obviously get onto the, the forks of Bitcoin. And we're really, I think we're trying to artic articulate uh, what we call the shelling point, which is, you know, the fancy way of saying that people kind of agree on one form of money or they agree right on a common form of exchange. And, and you typically, as we talked about earlier, converge on one form of money. And at least that's, uh, you know, Bitcoin is, is that form relative to any of the forks. So, that's, um, I think, just maybe hopefully better stated than, uh, than what it was before. Uh, but you also said it was a, uh, you know, there's a belief, uh, but it's not just belief. This isn't a, uh, I think it's more properly talked about as proper incentives. And that was, I guess, the genius, if you will, of what Satoshi Nakamoto uh, created in the game theory that that uh, that exists with Bitcoin, the the incentives for miners to uh, spend their energy, uh, their resources, uh, in uh, in exchange for a token, uh, which then uh, is exchanged only if the blocks that the miner form are properly formed and the, and the nodes you know enforce those rules, the so-called consensus rules. So I I mean that sounds like garbledy gook, but which is what makes it difficult in many respects to to appreciate but within there there's deep incentives you don't have to have a belief you just have to follow your own incentives and that's why it works across time and space with multiple parties that don't know each other um, and so that's important i think just for people that we're not trading on faith here um, and beyond that i i, I envision uh, a much different future um, where we have uh, a lot of things being built beyond just a store of value, even medium of exchange, unit of account. 
Um, my vision of how we get there, I think, is not multiple coins. I believe we should be building kind of in a modular fashion with Bitcoin as that base layer. And there's analogies that you can make kind of in the tech world around um, Unix and other computer systems where it's very simple and modular and you have so-called kind of ossified layers where things don't change. Um, I guess another analogy where people might understand it is the internet where we have the TCP IP layer. This is you know sort of the nuts and bolts of the internet. That doesn't change, even though there's lots of reasons why we could make a better, you know, we could make a better way to, to exchange information than IP addresses. We actually are pretty much running out of them, but we don't because it's stable and it's and people agree uh, there's sort of a shelling point with uh, TCP IP that this system works and there's more value in that stability and then adding layer two and layer three, whether that layer two is lightning and then layer three, who knows what it looks like in layer four, layer five, on and on. So that ultimately we have a very robust kind of DeFi system uh, and we can have smart contracts, but we're not building it on out of the gate. And that's my issue with Ethereum and other coins uh, or other networks is that they tried to build in too much functionality, too much complexity at the base layer. And that's why you continually see hacks at the base layer, which you've never seen with Bitcoin. Bitcoin has never been hacked, right? You've had exchanges get hacked and people confuse that with Bitcoin being hacked, but Bitcoin has been attacked. It is probably the most hardened computer network that's ever existed. There could not be a bigger honeypot than Bitcoin and it has resisted every attack. And, uh, you know, that, that brings us into sort of the Lindy effect and the fact that it has existed for a long time. And the longer it exists, the longer it is likely to exist. No other coin has that. Uh, and I think it's because of some of the choices that were made that, um, that you know, and, and so there's still being changes made at the base layer. There's, there's propositions of putting in, you know, taproot and changing the, to Schnorr signatures and, and, and these get into technical details. But there's a, a debate whether we should even do that or whether it should just be left alone and build on top of it. And let's go with lightning. Let's go with liquid. Let's go with these second, third layers. Um, I very much favor that approach. So let the games begin, I guess. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I suppose where I might deviate a little bit there is, um, again, I appreciate why Bitcoin is the dominant uh, coin in the space and why it will likely remain so for the foreseeable future. But um, one one area where I uh, disagree, I, I think, with the maximalist idea around Bitcoin is, you know, I just find it interesting that folks that are indeed maximalists are willing to sort of poo-poo gold, for example, as an alternative, which has been around for millennia, right? And Bitcoin has been around for 10 years, I, I agree 10 plus years. That. I think and there's then, a real role for gold. Yeah, I agree. With what it's worth. I mean, I think there's a role for gold, but also just like, so Bitcoin has been around for 12 years or whatever it is, um, and suddenly supplanted gold in the minds of maximalists uh, that has been around for millennia, yet there couldn't be something else that comes along you know, to supplant Bitcoin, right, in terms of relevance and dominance. Again, I think it's unlikely, but ide ideology, in my estimation, I think Paul Graham said is, is constraining. And I just like the idea of being open-minded, right, to... How would that play out, though? I've thought about this, and I can't conceive how you could have the so-called immaculate conception of Bitcoin, because everyone knows that it exists and how it exists. Yeah. And so I don't... And actually, I think that's maybe 
one of the biggest threats, conversely, as well. If there was some sort of unknown failure, say quantum computing, and even though there's reasons to think that you could you know, work around that, but let's just say it fails. I don't know how you would easily recreate the Bitcoin network because everyone would be like some crazy ICO, right? Everyone would want a piece of this. And, and yeah. so, uh, but similarly, I just don't see anything supplanting it. How can you have that fair distribution? How are you going to replicate? Like there's no functionality, right? That Bitcoin can't incorporate it. Some layers, not, you know, privacy. People talk about that. They talk about fungibility. Yeah. Those, those things can come at layer two and layer three. Like, uh, you know, the important properties can't be replicated. Well, one of the important properties, which is maybe neither here nor there, but it is one thing that fascinates me, uh, is the fact that, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto, if it is an individual uh, or a group of people, has re remained completely anonymous <laughs> right throughout this entire which period. Which is a feature, right? Which Not is a, a total, <laughs> a total, you know, that's why maybe to your point, Rob, how do you replicate it, right? Part of the magic there is... The, this person or people who created this thing basically just put it out into the world, you know, accumulated, I think a million or so Bitcoin along the way as yep. part of the Genesis block and thereafter, and has not done anything with it. Right. <laughs> basically just stayed. <laughs> scarcity to the space by not, I, I think there was talk recently that there might've been a little bit of a movement in his account, but from, from, when I actually looked into it, he hadn't moved it since the no, very no. beginning. His right? coins haven't moved. There were some yeah. very early coins that moved, but yeah, there's very strong circumstantial evidence as to which coins are his. Um, Do you think that there, it was a guy? It was there, there was a guy called Satoshi. Or think that that's a pseudonym for a group or a particular guy? Do you guys have a take, or does it even matter at this point? I, I have a theory, but only because I think it's a fun one. Uh, I don't think it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hear the fun one first. Yeah. Uh, and I, I doubt I'm the first one to, to think of it this way. But, um, you know, I, I would love, I, I like the logic around Elon Musk being behind this in some <laughs> form. Um, only because you think about it, you know, it's going to, you need someone with moonshot visionary thinking, right? You need someone with the technical chops to pull this off. You know, at that point in time, he was knee deep in PayPal, which is all around, you know, he knew his way around, you know, payment rails and so forth, probably encountered a ton of annoyance with all the different regulatory structures and systems. And given the fact that this person hasn't moved their coins, which at this point are probably worth like $15 billion, you know, they need to be wealthy already anyway, you know, or they're dead, right? So, those are the only two outcomes or they're the most extraordinary human being in the, <laughs> in the history of mankind. But, um, but I think it's, I think that's already been poo pooed, but I, I kind of like the logic of it. He and his cryptic tweet a, a while ago sort of added to that, uh, to, to the mystique around that theory, which I've heard as well. Right. Uh, I forget what it was, but he, he did drop a, a, a hint around that theory at one point. Well, I, I know he said, he's actually said he doesn't, he owns like, 0.2 Bitcoin or something. He, he, but of course he would say that, right? If you're Nakamoto, of course you're going to say that, right? Um, How about you, Rob? It's probably one of the, it's probably one of the people that have been identified. I think it's one individual. Um, you know, there's Hal Finney, there's Adam Back, there's uh, Nick Saibo, probably Adam Back. Not, not Craig Wright? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, that actually, yeah, every, every everyone's Satoshi except Craig. Uh, <laughs> Satoshi, yeah. How about yeah, no, it, it, But it doesn't matter. It's what matters is that they are anonymous. It's so much better that way. And uh, I think the coins haven't moved, be, probably because it's be incredibly difficult to move them without uh, de-anonymizing de yourself. And so um, I do think they will. Uh, be moved or value will be extracted from them at some point though. I don't think they're lost. Yeah. There's a happen. lot, there's a lot of material out this. If you want to go, this is the least interesting part of Bitcoin. Might <laughs> 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 get the most common. I am yeah, back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this part is going to get all the comments for sure. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Who's Satoshi Nakamoto? It's Elon Musk. Yeah. There's a there's another question. <laughs> he's a Dogecoin supporter. I mean, come on, he's a, he's like his <laughs> <Yeah>. allegiance. <laughs> That's right. That's what my kids like. They like Dogecoin. I mean, how could you not? <laughs> there's another question that I thought we might entertain, and I think this dovetails a little bit with what Matt uh, mentioned earlier about Paul Tudor Jones uh, owning crypto, but uh, owning Bitcoin, but uh, doing so through futures, so not in the purest sense. And uh, so uh, any thoughts on the development of crypto ETF? So what, what are your thoughts there, gents? That, that, that might attract more people into the space because of the whole difficulty of uh, actually having a digital wallet and, and, and a lot of people might see that as too steep of a curve uh, uh, to embrace. Probably not the institutional space, obviously. But uh, what are your thoughts there? Do you, do you think it's a less legitimate uh, way to play play the field? Well, um, legitimate is a loaded word. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, not your keys, not your coins. But it's, you know, it's a, probably a decent proxy for exposure to the asset class. Again, depending on how it's constructed, and there's a lot of devil in the details. So we'll see. Uh, I don't think it'll be that long before we see an ETF at this point, right? It's been they've been bouncing off the uh, the regulators for quite a while now. I, I, I actually am a little maybe contrarian uh, to a Bitcoiner anyway on this. I'm not waiting or even hoping for an ETF. I think it creates elements of centralization that you know kind of were the whole point is to avoid a lot of them. Uh, and yeah, there's risks, I guess, that come with that centralization. Like what happens if there is another fork, even though I don't believe that I think that the forks are over, but then you've got, you know, an administrator making a choice as to which chain you follow. Um, you know, there's things that are outside of your control and that's the issue with gold, right? A lot of Bitcoiners have with gold is that it's become centralized, right? It ends up in a bunch of vaults and governments can seize it. And you have a, you know, you have a certificate, you have a claim, but it's been hypothecated. It's been lent out. Does it even exist? Let's audit the Fed. So, you know, it pushes Bitcoin a little bit in that direction. That being said, it will be, uh, it will open it up for more people to buy it. So it probably is going to help the price. So we have we have some uh, you know we've got what what is it um, we've got uh, yeah I would uh, I would I would certainly agree with that I think um, relative to some of the uh, alternatives at the moment right so uh, there are you know so the grayscale Bitcoin trust for example is probably kind of the closest estimation to it um, 
But I think, you know, we have seen, obviously, there are some unintended consequences on the back of that, right? As retail gets exposure to it via OTC, you know, at a premium, right? So that obviously, I think, in my mind, sort of necessitates the development of an ETF, right? Um, you know, particularly to the extent the SEC is interested in protecting retail investors and, and so forth. I think it makes it uh, a more efficient way to access. And I think it also saves them from the potential pitfalls around managing their own keys and what have you, where they're just not quite, you know, maybe technically proficient enough to understand if you've got someone who can do that for them in a relatively liquid form and hopefully accessible and cheap form, then I think, uh, I think it's probably necessary. Uh, I totally appreciate Rob's point around, you know, the potential downsides of that. Um, but it seems to me it's an inevitability. It's probably don't, a healthy development, I think, for the space more broadly. Don't we want the financialization of the asset class more and more, though, from a spec if it's a speculative asset? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're just purely concerned with price, then you want ETF. You want every kind of access to the available to the retail or institutional investor, for that matter. Um, but the financialization, I would say, no, not necessarily. Like that implies all the things that I just kind of spoke about where we're lending, we're fractional reserve. Like yep. that's where a lot of the problems that I think Bitcoin alleviates, um, you know, stem from. So, yeah, personally, I'm not looking for the financialization, although it's coming. I mean, Matt has some great points. I actually agree with, with all those. It, people are not... Um, by and large, in a position to manage their own keys, especially with the current state of it, it's 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 difficult. It's technical. It's prone to loss, and a lot of people are losing their Bitcoin. So, as much as I say, not your keys, your coins, I can in the same breath say, like it's it's a risky thing um, that requires a fair bit of attention and and maybe some some technical chops to to pull off. So, an ETM does democratize that access to it, and in that respect, it's it's a good thing. All right. Did you guys um, talk about the one, the, any, any of the, how did we talk? I missed some of this. So did we talk about how an investor might consider this as a portfolio asset at all? Was that covered? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. In, uh, Good. Okay. To, a large, awesome. to, to a large degree, I, I would Great. say so. So I guess, I mean, we're, we're running up at around an hour, 20 minutes, just to, 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 to maybe sort of, summarize this and, and, and for any kind of institution, family office, someone out there that is considering the space and thinking about how maybe getting access to it. Uh, if you guys were to summarize how they might consider it for a portion of the portfolio, I guess, dovetailing slightly with what Mike was uh, asking. Best ways, focus on Bitcoin, go, go purist. Irresponsibly long. <laughs> <laughs> I have no doubts, Rob. You're, you're the biggest hodler in this group here, by far, no doubt. That's like I've got a fun. Rob's like you should just be long. We're we're doing a bunch. Yeah, of it, obviously, we're we're. Uh, I mean, I spoke to it a little bit earlier around the barbell approach. Um, you know, I think uh, you know there's certainly the directional nature of the exposure, which makes great sense. Uh, but there's also um, that more perhaps less directional in nature, which just capitalizes on the inefficiencies on offer, which can allow for more continuous thinking, uh, which doesn't sort of command 
10-year plus lockups, doesn't command willingness to stomach 75% drawdowns. Um, I think there's a number of different ways to skin the cat here. And I come at it from the hedge fund side, uh, putting aside the philosophical belief in Bitcoin and crypto and how it can be world-changing. I come at it more as a, as a trader and, and view it as just another asset class to trade at the moment, uh, which just so happens to be incredibly inefficient and therefore highly compelling. I've got a question for you, Matt. Yep. So sharp ratio. There's yep. a debate straight off of whether that's even an appropriate way of assessing Bitcoin returns. And, and I it's think, not. Yeah. yeah. And I can think of a number of reasons why why it isn't. So I guess that's you've kind of answered part of my question. But <laughs> if it's if it's not, why not? And uh, how do you uh, assess kind of the risk versus return profile when it's so you know asymmetric? Yeah, so we, um, uh, so the sharp ratio is in our mind suboptimal purely because it just it, it penalizes volatility up and down, right? Um, and so naturally, the hope and expectation is that the vol will exist certainly to the upside. Um, and even in a relatively kind of call it hedged or opportunistic format, uh, you can still capture a decent percent of the ups while mitigating the downs. And you don't want to be penalized for that because your sharp maybe is going to be a little bit less appealing, but your Sortino is going to look nice, right? So we think about risk adjusted more in Sortino terms. Um, you know, even, you know, Calmar, for example, could be interesting for this space where you're just looking at the annualized return vis-a-vis a, a peak to trough drawdown, which could be um, another way of thinking about things, which we do. Uh, but I agree with you. Sharp is not the appropriate metric here. So would you say Sortino given the... the- yeah, we've, that's the way we think about things is Sortino. We measure ourselves. Uh, in Sortino terms, not sharp terms. That makes sense. Get the ulcer in there too. Anyway, moving on. But uh, I guess to just sort of put a bow on that uh, on that earlier question that I had. Other than Bitcoin, Matt, maybe you take this one first. But uh, since you're you're looking at the space as a whole and looking for arbitrage opportunities, what are the other interesting coins that you're looking to speculate? If you're so inclined to speak uh, to, to talk your book up a little bit more, yeah, no, I mean we're not. Um, this will be a, a quick answer for Rob. I know he's uh, he's smiling over there. <laughs> um, we're again, we're more interested in the trading aspect, right? And so we're not wedded to any particular coin. We think there are some interesting emerging theses around DeFi, for example, um, you know, which could be interesting. But again, it's all for us, it's a trade. And I think that means we gravitate more towards the top 10 coins. Um, and again, we're only, we're, we're interested in folks that are just trading them, right? And arbing them. And uh, we're not really, we're not here for the buy and hold. Um, we're not here to sort of underwrite a thesis around, you know, ETH as a platform and um, you know, vis-a-vis Bitcoin, we're just here for folks that are extracting inefficiencies and that's what we're focused on. So I'm afraid I don't have a super interesting answer there, but um, maybe a little bit more to say than, than Rob, who I know is just going to say, buy Bitcoin and call it a day. Uh, <laughs> no, well, look, actually, I, I can be a little bit more nuanced than that. Uh, which, uh, and actually, so I accept that there's absolute inefficiencies in the space. I mean, it is nascent. All the reasons that you that you kind of mentioned, right? Like there, it's it is ripe for exploiting those. So I I accept it. I mean, um, does that give you exposure to the space? I think there may be fundamentally different things. There's and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just what are we getting exposure to? Like you you trade, um, you know, you could arbitrage. You could 
pretty much pure arbitrage Bitcoin for quite a while. Even even the last run up, there was big premiums in South Korea and other places. So you, and and people were doing that, right? You had guys running across the border from South Korea to Hong Kong with Rolexes and stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it exists and it will continue to exist for people who have the tools and insight that you guys have. But um, you know, if you were arbing out those inefficiencies from day one, you you probably would be not any better off in absolute terms for sure than if you just hodled. So there's a lot of nuance in between that and, you know, Sortino ratios uh, and, and, and risk adjusted returns. Um, so I don't think we're necessarily disagree. Uh, I think it's just what kind of exposure do you want? How do you use your exposure to crypto? I like the fact that you're not trying to take a diversified, a kind of a naive diversified approach and saying we're going to hold a basket of the top 10 cryptos because, you know, the top uh, nine cryptos probably don't have a use case, <laughs> in my opinion. And that's the reason why they keep turning over every couple of years. Yeah. You know, it's a lot different than holding a diversified back, basket of stocks and companies that have you know, proven businesses or something that they're doing that adds value or, other than just you know, issuing a token and creating kind of a, a Wild West uh, speculative market. So I appreciate that orientation. And yeah, there's folks that are doing it um, and they should do it, right? Like yeah. it's going to take a while to mature the ecosystem. Yeah, and I, I view it at more, um, I mean, you bring up a good point around, does that make sense to solve for exposure, right, to the space? Exactly, and, and we don't we don't view our job to come in um, and, and speak with clients around the notion of 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 here's why you should have exposure to the space, right? We don't think about things in terms of let me tell you what Bitcoin is and let's go through the, the this whole educational process. We think about it purely in terms of risk return. That's it. Yeah, uh, which is perfect. We, yeah, and yeah these are just numbers on a screen. This is another asset class to trade. And the one thing that I find you know, a little bit uh, challenging, of course, is there's plenty of, of investors that think about things in terms of, um, you know, we don't invest in things we don't understand, right? Uh, and of course, they want to get educated, which is, which is great. Um, but the, it's just kind of interesting because there's, you, you encounter these investors who had lots of exposure back in the day to CDOs and CDO squared and so mm -hmm. forth. And there's plenty of things that they have exposure to that, that they don't understand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and our point is we're trying to sort of disarm. Been sold it to me, so it must be good. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> like in our, in our minds, you know, of course you, you should try to understand and become educated, but for us, it doesn't require a ton of technical proficiency. You just need to understand, look, this is an asset class to trade. You know, these are these are these are numbers on the screen. A quant is a quant, and yeah, the underlying is, you know? the underlying something different. You don't have to care about that. It's all settled off, uh, you know, into fiat. And yeah, yeah. I so I think we absolutely see eye to eye on that. Yeah. If if you can get someone to just give me a call and explain the derivative books of um, any one of the banks, just so that I can understand it before <laughs> I invest in a high dividend you know, save company, please have them give me a call. Yeah. I'm still waiting for that too. By yeah. the way, is Mike speaking? Because I can't hear him at all. <laughs> so I see you guys nodding and I'm like, are you guys reading was, something? Yeah, or he is speaking? speaking. <laughs> he was, okay. uh, he was commenting on the derivative books of the banks. Okay. <laughs> and how much uh, he'd love to understand them as we all probably would. 
Right. On that note, gents, uh, it seems technology might be getting the best of us. <laughs> so uh, I want to say thank you to both you, Rob and Matt, for, for taking the time. I know we've taken an uh, hour and a half of your time today, and it was, uh, it was great. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a nascent field. I know close to zero about it. So it's, it was a great learning experience for me. I hope uh, everyone that's watching and listening did as well. And uh, Mike, any closing remarks? Nope, just thank you. You guys did you guys did a great job carrying the torch without me, and the show always must go on. Good job. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, enjoy your weekend. Thank you for joining us. Thanks thank so you. much for having us on. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University Podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.